right, Jaron, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is a pleasure to speak with you today. And um, just want to, you know, maybe like let you start out, kind of tell the listeners, um, you know, just who you are, like what your background is, you know, background story, that kind of thing. Um, I'll turn it over to you. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Hamilton. It's lovely to, to be here. Um, I am uh, an artist, but somebody who considers life art. And I'm from California. My parents were creative. And I have been on a pretty long lifeline journey, uh, lifelong journey around um, consumer engagement and brand and marketing and then beautiful things and pure, wonderful experiences. And how can you be present in what you're doing? And um, that's sort of the artist side of things that my parents imbued. And then the reality of like things need to be functional. So I am a designer of functional experiences, products and, um, and systems that in theory help humanity at this point, um, but are really fun. And maybe you don't even know anything about what I just said when you see it. That's great. That's a good way to kick it off. Why don't we start with uh, maybe your career? Like, how did you get your start? Yeah, so my high school boyfriend worked in advertising and I was waiting tables in college, not sure what I wanted to do. Um, had, I was studying business administration. I like to say I was Alex P. Keaton. Um, kids who are under 40 can look that up. Um, to compare it to my parents who were more pure artists. And I ended up in advertising for a decade. I ended up working at Shia Day on things like the relaunch of Apple. I produced commercials and photo shoots. And then I went on to represent directors. And I went to Parsons, which sort of bolstered the Americana upbringing of learning how to sew when I was little. And um, I had always sort of had a passion for fashion and told stories through my appearance um, in an interesting way because my parents lived on separate coasts. And so I would do my school shopping in another city and this is before the world was connected. Um, so I always looked different than everybody else. And I think when you get a chance to go to Manhattan and take in the sort of wonderment that was that island back in the day before everything was so connected. Um, there was a real sort of theater and sport to the individuals that lived on that island. And that greatly influenced me, like sort of anything is possible and you should be sort of, and I also think it's a very functional city. So your things need to work. And that sort of, that, that's, that's the underpinning for, even though I didn't live in New York, New York is the underpinning. New York of the seventies, eighties and nineties is the underpinning of my creative process. And then I went to Parsons and started my company by making a pair of pants for um, myself because I needed to be able to go to the bodega having grown up in New York, but I didn't want to wear sweats and I couldn't wear juicy because I lived in New LA in the nineties. And, um, and so I had nothing I could wear that looked good. And my, another boyfriend used to razz me about what I would put on and they were Margiela pants. And I said, well, I don't know what to do because it was literally where you go from Margiela. Um, and so I made a company and it was a sort of inflection point in time around society between ready to wear and fast fashion where contemporary rose. And I had a brand for a decade that was sold all over the world. We did lots of projects and large collaborations. And we sort of explored the idea of providing value to consumers and giving them something that delighted them. Um, and then I stepped back and I consulted for a while working for brands like West Elm and 20th Century Fox. All of that more in the side of marketing and branding, sort of mining the products and experiences that they were making and trying to create valuable um, connections to that for consumers through products. And then um, I did a stint at J. Crew as um, running an innovation group there for the first turnaround team where we were building brands of the future within a paradigm of an existing vertically integrated brand. And there's some really great value to that. They already have consumers, they have a supply chain built in. And if we can go in and think differently about our industry and the world, 
in that environment, that's a really healthy way to fast track things and to make some change in an industry that's one of the largest carbon criminals and has a lot of human rights challenges. And that just felt really impactful to me. And the CEO had a falling out with the board and I came home and decided to build a fashion brand doing just the same thing um, from the ground up. So fast tracking something that's really more about being a model than it is about the individual products we make now to leverage the existing infrastructure of the industry to help change the world. I love it. I'm going to take you back to, to your brand, um, a decade of the brand. What, what are some of the highlights for you there? What, what, um, what stands out? Well, I got like seven master's degrees, it feels like, because I decided to work in global <laughs> economics and transportation. <laughs> um, I think some of the really interesting things for me, I was very young when I started it. Um, I think the, the number one takeaway I would say is that we're really lucky to be Americans because we can think that that's possible. I can be somebody who grew up in advertising instead of fashion, but had knowledge of it and find my way. Um, so there's a real magic to that opportunity that exists. Um, and I don't think I give enough credit to that until I'm in another country and I meet someone who feels like they have limitations. And I'm like, wow, you're doing so much better than I was. And I was considered successful at your age. So I think that's one of my biggest takeaways. I also think it was very clear that you can't do it by yourself, especially when you're making a product. Like you have to have the buy-in and the contribution and the space for everybody along the supply chain from the person who makes the fiber or person who recycles the fiber through to the end to have a voice um, because otherwise you're just fighting sort of physical objects. And so that was interesting. And then also just how emotionally attached humans are to their clothes and how uh, this exploration of how do you use that for good? How do I, rather than making you want to be something other than what you are, how can I give you tools to be more of what you want to be? So those are the, I think that some of the top takeaways. Yeah, Plus it's a it. really hard business. <laughs> <laughs> what was hard? What, what was like the hard part of it? I think one of the things, you know, a part of it is a lot of what we do has been offshore and sort of, sort of falsely subsidized by lower wages and planet destruction. Um, and that sounds super negative, but you know, clothes cost the same or less than they did 20 years ago, but there's lots of other stuff that doesn't. And the only difference is we don't make them here. So tapping into that global supply chain and the opacity of the reasons why that stuff, those decisions were made by governments and individuals and companies over the sort of five decades leading up to transparency, it was really hard. I mean, cause you're just like wading into this this murk and you have no idea and you're sort of making these artistic choices. I think the opacity of the media industry and fashion, um, there's a lot of false truths. And so where I talk about that human connection and the joy that it brings, some of that is predicated off of price and emotion attached to media that aren't necessarily real sustainable or scalable. And so I think that is on the other side, I wouldn't say that I realized that at the time, but um, looking back at it, that makes for a really hard job because you're standing in a factory and people need to work and they need to get paid. But like the person who's your buyer three generations away just wants it cheaper. And like, you have to be a magician in order to do that. You sort of have to do it at scale. And then the people at scale aren't super transparent. So it's an interesting industry because it is, you know, it's global, it's multinational, but it's touching every human on earth every day. Everyone puts clothes on at this point um, or almost everybody. Uh, so it's an interesting journey where there's, there's a disconnect. And I think that just gets caught up in like logistics and cost and, you know, stuff not arriving and trying to fit into the system that's been created. But the, like, you're, the, you're basically the conduit between this entire other world and this world that's been polished and some of it's not real. And so you're just constantly like in a washing machine with like the rocks that they, they uh, do stonewash for denim with. It just feels like that. Like you just never know. 
Um, and there's not a lot of compassion in the funnel until recently. Yeah, no, I think that's like spot on. That's pretty much sums up uh, the whole existence there in uh, th th this industry. But uh, no, that that's that's super. Um, it's, it seems like you, you know, you, you saw that that was like a, a need and it was a problem and you felt like you were um, you, you could do more basically like with um, the resources, et cetera. So maybe how did you kind of get to consulting and like how did that shape maybe some of your view on some of this, um, you know, some of these issues and like, you know, we'll work up to like what you're doing today. And, you know, I think that's just amazing work that you're doing now as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I constantly had these sort of, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, this, you sort of wake up and you're like, wow, am I going to be able to do this today? Like, and for me, it was different because I had had a career. One of the responses to my parents was that when I got into advertising and I sort of found my way into it, I liked the people in advertising. And at Shia Day, we thought we were changing the world. We didn't think we were making like the bad kind of advertising. Like it was Apple, it was Nissan. Um, and I believed it and I liked the people and I knew that that was a job I could do for the rest of my life and like it. And that I had to do that first before I could go on in an artistic endeavor. Whereas my parents, who I call cultural immigrants, just dove right in, right? Um, I needed that security that I could go back to something. And so that was why when I was in fashion, I kept sort of hitting the wall of everything we just talked about. And incrementally over time, the supply chain of how things get to the consumer, the distribution, the consumer stopped mattering as much. The consumer hadn't gained control through technology yet. And I was just felt like I was doing all this work and asking everyone around me to do all this work for something that wasn't actually making a positive impact in a consumer's life. And it was incrementally getting worse. And I had built the company with a $5,000 investment of my own and a hell of a lot of time and a small amount of angel investment along the way. And we had done pretty well. It had been profitable most years, except for the year that um, the economy crashed. And um, that's because I couldn't afford for it not to be because I wasn't a trustafari. And, um, and I and the you know, sort of world of VC and, and all of those investment funnels weren't focused on fashion at that point in time. I mean, the entire financial mechanism in the industry was factoring, which we didn't even do until we had a huge partnership that allowed us to scale and to not have to use all of our capital just to support that partnership. So I think that was part of it for me. I just looked up and I, I say all of that because I looked up one day and I just was like, the consumer is not at the center of this conversation. I'm watching technology rise. I was raised in the Silicon Valley in New York City, which is a pretty interesting place to have been raised during the time that I was raised there because a lot of the change that exists today came out of those two times. I would thank my parents for putting me in the room. And I was spending a lot of time in Asia and I was watching the rise of Asia. And I just thought maybe fashion isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. Like if I can't make change here. So I stepped back and I was like, should it be art, which was the family business? Should it be travel? Because that's the underpinning of the narrative of the brand that I built or is it fashion? And fashion doesn't exist in LA. And so I traveled a lot and I ended up consulting and all of my consulting was in the space of marketing and, and, um, and that idea of translating other people's assets and things that they're creating to consumer education and to value for them so that they could do more good. So I ended up being really lucky getting to work at somewhere like West Elm or, or Jim Brett, who was the CEO, was already doing all of this stuff. All I was doing was helping make sure that the consumer could figure out how to consume that information. Or Cure Weiss, which is an ecologically sound luxury beauty brand that makes wonderful, beautiful product. And you know that's the, the work that we were doing there. So I got very lucky with my consulting projects. I ended up actually hitting a lot of points um, where I got to exercise the things that were frustrating me about fashion in other industries. But all around sort of product and consumers and how they engage with product and how they use it and how it can benefit them and the planet. 
Did you find yourself using a lot of your ad agency background for those projects or was it maybe something, was it more of like what you learned is like kind of an indie designer? Um, what do you think, you know, maybe contributed the most to your success in those projects, those larger so projects? I, I just had this conversation with a consulting client yesterday who's a, a very accomplished entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, every time you get the next opportunity, you're like, God, everything I've ever done has led up to this moment. Like when I got the job at Jaker, I was like, literally everything I've ever done, like every breath I've ever taken as a consumer, as a kid coming to New York and experiencing the organic growth of Crew as a physical brand, working at the Gap near their first store in Seaport. Like I was like, God, literally everything led up to this. My understanding of technology and global economics, marketing. Um, I would say it's a synthesis of the two. And so I think really what it comes out of is like living a curious life. And, and part of that is my parents. Part of that is I was the right kid. I was the firstborn in the family. I've traveled the world. I haven't had kids. There's a lot of it. So I actually think it comes out of that. Like just if you're willing to be curious and keep your eyes open, it's a, an amalgamation of the experience. What I would say is when I started Jaron Ford, my, so every one of us that started a brand at that time, Rebecca Minkoff, Alexander Wayne, everybody had an individual advantage to market. And mine was marketing. So they intertwine with each other like a braid. So I worked at an advertising agency that asked people how they made what they did for us to market it. So I started asking those questions in that process. But I also understood marketing and media because we worked at a really wonderful place. So when I got into making products, I asked myself to make products a certain way and then I could market them. And then when I got back into marketing, I could understand the value propositions that people were using when they were making things. So it's sort of like, um, like if you shuffle the deck of cards and they land on top of each other and then you push them together. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I could see that. And would you say from a marketing standpoint, um, what, what were some of like, I guess, like, I know you were exposed a lot to wholesale too. You know, what were some of the things that worked in terms of like, I guess, like the flip side of that, like landing those accounts and, um, you know, getting exposure? Were, were there any like moments where you were just like, you know, you're like, okay, we got to hold on for this one. This is a huge partnership. You know, how are we going to do this? And then you pulled it off, like anything that comes to mind like that. Yeah, I'll say um, it's going to sound cliche, but authenticity is the number one, because what we just described on the fashion industry or any product industry is a real rough road. So you got to know why you're doing what you're doing, the sort of false walls of fashion, whether that be what the media has fed somebody or what somebody has told somebody or what somebody believes about the world of like, you can make it overnight. It does, it's not true. And it's the same in Hollywood. It's the same in any one of what I call the vanity industries. So there's that, like, I think actually being honest about the fact that it's not super easy and being authentic. And that's so celebrated now. Um, and I will say, like, I'll tell you the story. My dad lived in a loft in New York city and some of his friends were also painters. And I used to play with their kids um, when I would come to New York to visit. And one of those kids went to high school with somebody who married somebody who was at Barney's. And I ended up getting my first meeting at Barney's back in the day with like Terrence and Julie. Um, and we were just talking about the lingerie department and I met with them for three years. I would go up, I would like, you gotta like get your, you know, like you've gotta know why you're doing what you're doing. You gotta believe it's possible. I got in the door because Susie opened it, but you gotta stay there yourself. And then one day, it just happened and it was big and it was one of the things that broke the company. So it's like, I, I think that's a, the best example because I remember just coming out onto the street, their offices were in the sixties and um, just being like, wow, that just changed my life um, because I knew what it meant because I had gotten into Barney's with some jewelry that I had had earlier as a young person into their old office. And I just, 
it's funny for me because New York is actually the center of that as well. My life has changed. My like put my feet down there and there's something about the energy and like my life, my life will do a 180. So like, yes, that happened in a moment. I walked out and I knew what it meant, but I had to be patient. I had to just keep doing the work. They weren't interested, but I, I was their customer. I knew their, I was their customer. Like I, I understood who shopped at that store and they also did. And they knew that I wasn't ready until I was ready. And that's why it worked when it worked. So I think part of that is also, that's part of why I got out though, not about Barney's, but like the trusting of the system. So when that system that they had created over decades and decades and decades of post-industrial America to technology America around consumers and how they were purchasing, you could operate in that system of wholesale and they were the guardians, not data or perception or clicks or lack of attribution. Not, I love all of those things, but I think we haven't found our footing where that way of that Julie and Terrence worked and the, the gates that were put in place for the old guard around wholesale for the big department stores, or you know, if somebody's gonna buy your stuff and put it on their, their floor and they only have so much real estate, real estate was the barrier there because there wasn't really e-commerce. And now it's this idea that sort of data and access is the barrier. And I look so forward to the moment where those two things join and we define what omni-channel distribution means in the next 12 months. Yeah, no, that's, no, it's fascinating how much we have, you know, fast forward everything, it seems like with the crisis going on, um, you know, just things that, uh, you know, this from blockchain to, um, you, you know, just how art, you know, everything with digital art, you know, it's just it seems like we're moving really fast. And to your point, it's like catching up, like, um, you know, this world of like fashion and manufacturing and all this and, um where that intersects with, um, you know, like an NFT or something, you know, like it's kind yeah. of like, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting to kind of see where things are going to, going to go. Um, what, what do you think is, uh, what's, what was, what was like, uh, maybe something that was like super transformative for you, just like, as you were building the brand, like, was it mentorship or, um, hiring people or, um, you know, just saying, you know, I don't care if it takes three years to open an account is going to keep, you know, knocking on this door. Like what, um, what do you think kind of, uh, it was like one of the like best attributes that maybe you developed during that time. You mean for Jaron Ford? For Jaron Ford. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, so I built, I took $5,000. I knew how to produce things from advertising and it was a similar process. You take a raw material, you create a finished product, you take an idea and advertising, you create an ad. And you have a system of experts along the way that make contributions, edits, and changes. And they were the exact same process. And so since I was a producer in advertising, I applied that way of thinking to it. And I think the number one thing for me was the consumer. So I say I started it really small. I controlled that process. I allowed people to contribute. And then I individually interacted with the humans who were wearing it in a more old school way. And that was, I realized for me that while there are these giant systems and these sort of heady ways of thinking about society or flow of merchandise or whatever in my brain, really, if somebody's finding delight and use in that product, like one of them, we made this pair of pants that was like this pair of drawstring pants that was the thing that I made to solve the problem in my own life because I wouldn't wear sweats. I went to a, a brunch a couple of weeks ago or a couple months ago in Brentwood with some very powerful women in you know media and advertising. And, um, and one of them was somebody who was in fashion and the literally the discussion about the pants happened and it was like and it's like what and we made some new ones for canava that we haven't launched yet that are very similar and so solving problems in people's life is where i found inspiration like do you feel better is it something that's useful and that's the sort of 
you know, one of the lines that we use with Jaron Ford was that it's like, you know, we, we make the outfits for the movie of your life. Um, and that's whatever that is, right? Like that doesn't have to be a red, red carpet. Red carpet didn't even exist really at the time. And so the idea is like, are we making things that make people feel better? And that interaction with the consumer really is the inspiration. Cause ultimately I'm not saying I'm just consumer focused, but if you solve that, then you've actually, you can find your way through the rest of it. It helps, like I ask, where does the consumer that we want to sell to shop? How are they behaving? Where, where's our value to them? Like rather than trying to be everything to everybody, I think you have to sort of take that stand and then just sort of chip away at it and be willing to be wrong. Like, I mean, I was never that attached to any one item. So when we had these hits like the pants or we had this kimono dress that was like just everywhere. And I was like, well, we don't wanna be the person who just made that because that's not ultimately the larger project that we're working on. We wanna keep solving problems for consumers. So I would say the consumer is what inspires me. Um, to keep going into this industry for sure yeah that's great and then kind of fast forward you know you're you're doing something new now you want to talk about you know kind of how that's started um you know what your mission is your goals with everything yeah so at jcrew i was prepared to i mean we were what i would consider a vanity project we were building the future um and there was a lot of repair to do for the parent brand that i wasn't necessarily core and working on and um I was so prepared to fail and fail or to succeed and succeed, but because the macros of the way the situation happened had nothing to do with my success or failure, I was totally not prepared to succeed and then fail, at least not exactly when we did. So I was sort of in shock when it sort of ended abruptly and you're playing a game where your name ends up in the Wall Street Journal and you've just been in a fitting for two weeks because you're sort of head down in the work. So I stepped back and I came home and I thought, well, what am I going to do next? There was a period of time I couldn't work because of my agreement. And then I looked up and I had been working on travel prior to going back into fashion with J. Crew, And the idea was that it affects everybody on earth and that there's a way for us to use the most powerful, wealthy, most isolated nations on earth by giving them something they want to sort of reflow capital to other parts of the world, especially the global south, where it's often the number one GDP in a country tourism. And so that felt like a really positive way for me to try to give a lot of people what they wanted and help a lot of people and to create a system that wasn't necessarily just product-based, it was media and advertising combined with product and travel felt like a natural place to land that. And then I looked up and that's why I was like, should I be, should I go back to travel? Or, you know, I sort of had learned a lot in the five years between coming up with the travel company and the consulting projects I was on and the J Crew experience. And I looked up and I thought, well, fashion is, you know, depending on the year, the third or fourth largest or the list, the carbon, I call them carbon criminals on earth. Um, because of this sort of false subsidy of the way that the decentralized offshore world has happened, you know, there's a huge impact on the population of workforce and the stressors of the system. And I thought, well, what if we built a mechanism to change that? What if we built a model that people could want to do as much as they want to be on Project Runway or they want to be a YouTuber? What if we can leverage the way that technology has changed the world, but still tap into that consumer need and that emotional attachment people have with it? And can we jump on the river? Can we act like software? Can we go in and can we create something that's a minimum viable product because sort of physical product, whether that be home product or clothes or things for your dogs, they're cyclical. You wear them out or you tire of them and you pass them on. And it's the same thing with software, people issuing updates to software, right? Like it felt very similar to me. And I thought, well, let's just lean in. I can build a tech stack. We can build a minimal amount of tech on top of it. We can analyze human behavior and we can iterate. How, how can we do that so that then it becomes a model that other people in the industry want to follow? 
And there was a hole in the category I had started Jaron Ford in, Victoria's Secret was crumbling. I still had problems finding things in that world that felt like they matched what I wanted them to be. So we started to focus on lingerie and loungewear or intimates and loungewear as a focus with a really narrow focus on raw materials. So the raw material is our first king and the consumer is our second king or our king and queen at Canava. So the idea is that by being very intentional about how we work with our raw materials, whether that is something that we are making from the soil up or something that we are collecting to repurpose, containing and controlling that is our science. So we're not textile scientists, we are purchasers of textile science and we are creators of ecosystems where from that inflection point of material forward, we can control the longest, most robust life for objects and fibers um, in the world. And hopefully most or not all of it is biodegradable. And then it becomes soil to soil, which is a circular system, but it has a lot of value for the consumer and a lot that we ask of our materials in between. And what's the design process look like for you? Or how do you, uh, how do you get inspired and you know, how do you kind of put the shapes and styles together? So narratively, um, yeah, I mean, it's a narrative process for us. We, we sort of, so what we do is we source materials and we keep a regular look on what's happening in the world and development. Um, and we, we just, that's a constant collection of like what's happening, what's out there, what's interesting. That's our sort of, if you were talking about a kitchen, that's our farm, right? Like making sure that we're keeping an eye on the farm. And then we talk about narrative and like what's inspiring us, what's bringing us joy. That's the entertainment function of it. So we have these pillars of sort of like education, empowerment and entertainment, we believe builds community. Um, and so the education and empowerment comes from choosing the right materials or telling somebody why that material is good. And the entertainment is like, what is that product? How does it work? Does it solve a problem for you? So we take a very Bauhausian form follows function approach to design combined with the narrative, combined with the collection of information. And we again, braid those together and we build things that are useful for people in a way that lasts. And we make joyful, um, cyclical, artistic, creative narrative decisions along the way around color and print and pattern. Um, and they are often tethered to human emotion. I don't build mood boards, it's never been my thing. Um, I, like with Jaron Ford, I would be inspired by like, I didn't love Gauguin because I knew a lot about him as a human because um, my father was a painter and I'd spent some time in Tahiti, but I went to see his show at the Tate and I was stopped in my tracks by the color. I just was like, wow, this is, it's something I had never given a chance to because I had judged the person who created it. And so that would be a point of inspiration for me that I would use. But those happen every day in real life. I can't go seeking them. I just have my eyes open. I'm curious. I have to judge my own response to music and art and fashion and culture or being here in Hawaii for a bit of time, like nature, colors, flowers. And I just collected, I have a bit of a photographic memory and it just runs like a loop in my head. And then we, we, we decide what humans need we look at the raw materials we're making making them from. We look at the market and how you build a company and a brand that lasts versus just an acquirable asset through the money numbers game. And we do the best we can every day. Yeah, that's great. What uh, what kind of like uh, like success habits and routines do you have? What how do you structure your day? I mean, being an entrepreneur, you can you know you could get up and you could you know you could do anything that day really. I mean, you you could take on marketing first. You could take on you know, design, you could, um, you know, not do any of that stuff. You could just go for really long walks. Like, um, how, how do you, uh, <laughs> how, how do you think about, um, you know, like a, a typical day? Um, I would say it's a constant evolution. Um, 
And I, the number one thing I have learned to do as an only child, which I think is part of why I was able to do it at a younger age, I was very clear of what made me sore and what made me crash. Like, I know that I don't like to work hard to work hard. Like if, if, if the politics come into play and that's part of what happened in fashion is all I was doing was working hard to work hard at the end of Jaron Ford. I just was like, that's all I'm doing. I'm just working my ass off to ask other people to work their ass off to do a bunch more work. And so I know as a consultant or an employee, an old boss taught this to me because he came in and he kept pressuring me. And I was like, wait, I'm not, ne- I'm not positively responding to this because I'm having to do all this work just to getting to do the work. Um, and so I'd say that's the number one thing, like that's a driver for me that I try to avoid both personally and professionally. Like if I want to eat well, but eating well means I have to do some prep, then I just better do that prep because the moment of not eating well is way more painful for me than the prep. Does that make sense? So I identify those inflection points that, that change my response as a human and take away my, my, the things that make me a unicorn, the things that make me allow, able to put together those complex math equations or to be empathetic or present in a situation that I haven't personally experienced or to see something from a fly on the wall perspective to be able to help as a consultant. All of that requires me to be working optimally as a human. And so what I do is I create systems and I have a real conversation with myself. And so in the case of, um, you know, I'm, I'm here in Hawaii, this is a perfect example. I have brought Grady's cold brew all over the world for the last however long, right? When I was shooting films, Whole Foods would be the first place we stopped in every single town to get the Grady's cold brew, to get a certain kind of uh, bar, to get some bananas, because I know that those are the routines and habits that make me feel good. And then also just, I think a lot of self-reflection, to be honest with you, because when you're somebody who's allowed to freely think, which is what my parents provided, that makes you think you're right, right? And I think that's not the case. So I think I often have to do some like, just be in the moment, be in the flow, but also look back at yourself. So I know those are sort of ethereal things, but it's a lot of self-management. Like if I know that not having something is gonna make me not be optimal, I will change that. And so I think that's why I'm so focused on objects and creating things for people is because that moment of flow, when you have the right thing, the perfect white t-shirt, the tennis shoes that make your feet feel good, but also make you feel fashionable or that, moment where it clicks and you've got that perfect, whatever it is, pair of eyeglasses, salad, those things that are habitual that are the inflection points to create the most successful companies in the world. You can, you know when that's right or wrong, you just do. And if you're willing to say, I'd like it to always be right. And I'm gonna do the work for that. Um, and that doesn't mean it's expensive. That just means it's right. Like that's my Grady's cold brew. I literally bring it everywhere just in case because explaining like I have a crazy name so I explain my name everywhere I go in the world because it doesn't mean anything in any country and trying to get a good coffee in Morocco on a Wednesday morning may not happen you know and so if you can do a little bit of an insurance policy to keep yourself in the creative space which I think is very similar to what a painter does in a studio or I'm sure a writer does for me it just happens to be the container is wherever I am and the art is what I'm doing whether that be marketing or or fashion currently. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm on the same page. I, I feel like there's certain things that are like my non-negotiables, like, um, you know, and sometimes it's a, it might be a food or, or a drink, but, um, you know, like meditation for me is really like moved up on my list. Yeah, journaling, you know, it's really moved up on my list. Journaling, like, I, it's like it's something, it feels like it's off if I don't actually journal or like if I don't actually um you know, just kind of like do a stream of conscious, like writing or something just to kind of get my thoughts and, you know, onto paper, like, 
but there was a time when I, I didn't do that stuff. And, um, you know, it's just interesting how, uh, you know, different creative people can, you know, stay productive some, you know, cause there's like you say, I don't think there's like a right or wrong, really, you know, you can have, you know, people that are, uh, you know, they, they, they would never, you know, they would never write anything down, you know, or they would, yeah. um, you know, you know, never do anything twice, you know, um, but it's, uh, that, that's, that's awesome. Well, a lot of it comes from my parents, right? So I watched them be creative people who were held back by not being able to control the access for that creativity to live. And so I don't necessarily consider myself as creative as they were because I'm, I would rather get an, less ideas out into the world than have more ideas that I'm sitting with because that's a frustrating cycle for me. So all I do is create systems to empower the faster, it's like my own software system sort of for my own life of like just recognizing the behaviors. I don't enjoy doing something twice that feels friction oriented, but then also really admitting that you're not right and that things can completely change. And I think COVID taught me a lot of that, right? Like I was traveling all over the world all the time. And this last flight that I took was my first flight in two years. I, since my, I can remember my life, it has it never feel? been more than like a few months between flights. It was interesting. Um, I felt a little bit like I was like an Olympic athlete who'd been like, who'd won a gold medal because I was a total pro at it before. And then suddenly I like hadn't run for two years because I had a, an injury. And then I was put back in the room and I was like, I don't, can I run? Like, I don't even know. So it was, it was things were moved a little bit upside down and backwards. Like certain things were exactly the same. I think the people involved were the biggest change for me. The people who are along the supply chain, they're much more conscious as well. TSA, lounge check-in, Hawaii wristband, wristband check-in. And I actually challenged myself before the trip to not create any waste on the trip. So I like packed my own food and I thought, well, if I'm gonna bring this water bottle to Hawaii, so I have it, it's glass, it's heavier and it's gonna take up more space. And so I really, I gave myself a challenge. Like we make tea towels. So I brought one of our tea towels with us as my napkin rather than taking paper napkins. Um, and it was a really interesting journey. So even just to be able to think about it that way was probably the biggest change was like, yes, there's the carbon footprint of the flight, but also like what's happening behaviorally along the flight? Like how can I create a joyful experience for myself that is impactful positively to the planet and I get to have the experience I want, but the world around me hasn't necessarily gotten there yet because they won't give you a glass second time or they won't refill your bottle because of COVID. Um, it's just an interesting, it was an interesting challenge. So that's what I sort of decided to do with it. Yeah, that's great. And then, you know, now that you're there, you know, you, you could, your, your life can change, you know, any day, like, you know, not that it can't um, anywhere else, but um, you know, that can also, that, that has a ripple effect down the um, road with your customers and, you know, you, you, you know, you'll inspire someone uh, you'll be inspired and it, it just is like a, it's like a flywheel almost. So that, that's a, uh, yeah, I, I haven't, I haven't flown since, uh, I think I flew like right before everything, you know, like locked down. And that was like literally the last time I got on a plane. So uh, it'll be a while before I do again, but uh, I will say that that journey is my creativity, right? So like what I say, my feet used to touch ground in Manhattan. It's because I didn't have to deal with my daily life. So I was on a conference call um, the day before I left and they were like, what are you looking forward to? And I was like, I'm oddly looking forward to not being with my things, like everything I own, right? Um, because I don't have to maintain them. I don't have to take care of them. I have an isolated kit, which is a huge part of how I design is going through like what was useful, what wasn't useful. And so that's really interesting. And I think when you're not dealing with your own stuff, be that my puppy or my house or my car, or just like the people who come and help me take care of the house and the car, um, I'm here just as an observer, eyes open. 
And so I see the patterns and systems that other people are living with, the things they're using, the color palette of something that's washed out. All of that is absorbed so much more greatly because I do live with such a systematic life that like I've already prepared myself to protect myself from like travel trauma. Plus when you go somewhere for a longer period of time, like I did as a child, you're sort of living there, but with none of the responsibilities. And it allows you exactly what you're talking about, which is to just see my eyes are just open and smell and hear in a way that you do not in your own environment. And you do not when you're traveling either. Like if you're touristing or moving, it's harder to do that. But if you're temporarily stationary somewhere else, and I'm so excited about this idea of sort of people working remotely, which means they're choosing to be in other parts of the world, the actual ripple effect of what I just talked about is going to be massive, massive and positive, I think, to the world, because you just can't help but have empathy or admiration or understanding of other places or other ways of doing things any other way faster than putting yourself uncomfortably in that situation where you have no control. Yeah, no, that's great. And kind of just, you know, to talk about your your current work, um, where are you at with like products? I know you said you're doing intimates and, you know, you're kind of selling yeah. it uh, direct to consumer, it sounds like. Uh, maybe, you know, walk us through kind of, you know, how you're distributing the products, how you're, uh, you know, you know, things that you're doing from a marketing standpoint? Yeah, so the original plan was fast track, iterate, build on top of a white labeled tech stack and be omni-channel in both marketing and um, distribution. So that would be leveraging the existing rails of real estate with retailers, partnership pop-ups, a direct-to-consumer e-commerce vertical strategy, an in-studio strategy that's more intimate, that's mirrored off of how I built my first company. That's great. That was totally working. We launched on Martin Luther King Day 2020. Woo-ha. All of it was active. And then the same thing for marketing. Like how are, you know, I think for us, marketing is more than just selling something to someone. It's building a community because that's just how I respond as a consumer. And, and that involves Netflix and Facebook and everybody, right? Like how are you spending the minutes of your day and how can we give value to that, not just asking something from you, but how can we provide value? And is that access to our network, access to this work that we're doing, access to our curiosity, access to our artist friends, providing a platform for people. And during COVID, we really got to exercise that attached to our impact at the company, which was quite pleasantly surprising, where I didn't want to talk to people about clothes at that point um, as a person. And there was a lot of people freaking out, trying to sell a lot of inventory. We were brand new. We have this bigger mission at hand. And so this idea of omni-channel marketing and, and um, con product distribution has been something that has just been iterated along the way. And um, as consumer sentiment and public policy change, I think we're really finding this moment where that's what's really going to drive brands to be able to deliver a real experience. And so for us, it's redefining what does that mean? What does omni-channel marketing mean when attribution isn't actually as clear as it used to be? And that Facebook isn't as powerful as it used to be because of iOS 14 or a thousand other reasons. And that consumers that you get through spending a ton of VC money on customer acquisition aren't necessarily adding to their lifetime value or building something that's meaningful all the time, right? Like you can't just rely on that. And then from an omni-channel distribution standpoint, like what is the role of marketplaces? Like, is that a way where for us to sort of leverage some sort of a hybridization? Because for me, Wholesale, you're giving up a portion of your margin to the retailer, which is basically they're tethered to the commercial real estate industry, right? And then in digital marketing and direct-to-consumer, 40% of every dollar over the last 10 years raised by VC, I listened to a talk, in theory, went to Google and Facebook, same exact margin as going to real estate through the retailers. So those are the same. And so for us, it's this idea of like, how do you look at distribution, marketing, community, product, and the cycle and create additional circles? Like, so we're circular in our model 
But then how do we say, well, this is the business model. This is our actual business model. Our margin is this. And that margin could be because we're selling it directly to a consumer. Or if say we're creating something where we're selling it directly to them in person, maybe the real estate costs us more. So I think actually you end up at the same place and I'm working on it every day. Like we're trying to figure out and redefine what does omni-channel mean? How much of that is, a, what is that partnership look like with a retailer? Is it concession? How do you do that as a small brand? Do you gather together as brands? Is that through marketplaces? Do you have a curation of different marketplaces and you're leveraging access to audience? How are you creating in-person experiences for people that are valuable that help you build community? Um, and so I think the marketing and the, um, and the distribution for us are similar. We, we work from this sort of macro ecosystem world. And then we look at the things that win. Like the whole point is to build something where like, yeah, if there's an algorithm that you find that wins, great, but your business isn't predicated on success only by that algorithm. Or your, your business isn't predicated by success only by your target partnership. Like you need to have a diversified revenue stream because the world changes um, and consumer sentiment is drastically and quickly changing. And so I think you just have to decide what you wanna do and think about where the consumers that care about what you're making or that you know will care about what you're making but don't care about it yet live. And what are they doing with their time? And then we look, we use that information to inform those two omni-channel strategies all the time. Yeah, no, well said. Um, I, I really, it's like a, you know, huge, um, it, it's the elephant in the room, I guess, no matter how you look at it, whether you're yeah. looking at um, the real estate or uh, the toll booth, you know, from, uh, you know, the digital companies. So it's a, uh, it's kind of figuring that part of it out. Um, who's at the table with you as you do this? What kind of like, you know, roles do you recruit for or uh, teammates? You know, how, how do you think about like HR and these things? So co-founder is Yisbel Zamora, who is a wizard. That's all her, a scientist of product because she is um, an amazingly creative individual. She's also multidimensional, sort of tons and tons of different skill sets. And she worked with me at Jaren Ford. She was a colleague there running my development. And then she also worked with me at J. Crew, running and helming the sort of product focused um, portion of that role. So we worked together for a really long time. And for me, that's an interesting thing because it's all about how you think, right? Like the systems change, the asks change. And I think for us, it's about that. We do a lot of um, decentralized work at this point. And that's what we were doing at J. Crew as well. Like I was building a very small inside team to respond to the businesses we were building and, and how they became successful by leveraging um, a lot of sort of what would be considered, I guess, now fractional um, people from the outside. Luckily, I've had a lot of lives, so I can, I can call the person who does the thing, whatever the thing is. Um, and get them on board and try to, what we really work to do, which is I think interesting and will come into play as we scale post-funding, we try to create an environment that is additive to a person's expertise. So if somebody's a really, really good designer, we have all this tons of structure around us. We can provide them with that structure so that they can bring the thing that is the most efficient use of their magic. Um, if somebody's really good at dealing with people, you know, I think that's something that like, maybe I'm not as good at that. Maybe I'm not like, I'm, I'm totally engaging when I'm in it, but like, I don't want to do that all day, but certain people are really fed by that. So I think we think about like, what is the purpose of what we need? What is the skill set that comes to it? And how do we create something that lasts or how do we find something that doesn't need to last? Because I learned this lesson with my first company, you know, I, somebody gave me a book once and I can't remember the name of it. But it was like, basically your first employer will never be your last employee. And I was, you know, in my early 30s or in my 20s still maybe at the time. And I was like, somebody could have told me that three years ago because that would have saved me a lot of pain and suffering. Um, and so I think for us, it's about creating the environment and then asking ourselves to 
be there in a way that makes sense for somebody to be there for more than a paycheck. Um, and that would be the case. We, we source through our network. We don't use recruiters really. I've never had a really great experience with that. Having said that, I haven't been personally recruiting on a high level in this new digital world that exists. You know, I think there's a real benefit to certain new things like Arlen um, from Backstage Capital has just started a company that seems really interesting around the way that they're approaching human capital. And so I'm super interested in that. I think as a company in the current world, um, a people person would be one of our first hires because it's somebody who's actually thinking the way we think about designing products about people and how they live their lives. Yep. No, that's great. And um, what do you say is like, uh, like the biggest challenge you got, like you're facing right now that, you know, you're going to, that like, how, what's, what's consuming most of your time? Um, well, I split it. It definitely goes in chapters, right? Like I think solving those two omni-channel questions takes a lot of time because the more I do to try to break those puzzles, the more I know who we want to invest in us because we'll be the thing that that, that person who's the right person for us wants to invest in. And I would say separately from trying to solve the business model to just really, really get it to a place where we can actually scale the circularity of it and we can actually scale in the current world, but with future thinking. Um, and I would say investment is the second part of it. And it's not just the amount of investment that goes into female founded companies, or it's the fact that we're thinking like tech and we're thinking in this crazy way that's like systems oriented, but we're making a physical product. Um, and it's funny because I talk often to people who are VCs or people who fund things and there's so much SaaS. And I'm like, is there enough companies to buy all of this? Like, especially in like the B2, the B2B space. I'm like, I mean, having worked, you know, through various careers, like every advertising agency has a product project management system. Yeah, but like that doesn't get cycled through like every month. That's not like, there's not 10 trillion advertising agencies that are going to buy a $50,000 enterprise software program. So I'm always just constantly in awe of the fact of how much money is being funneled into that. And that, that's like sort of like one out of 10 needs to make it. But in the space that we live in, it's just a different funding funding mechanism. So I think for us, our biggest challenge right now is how do we make sure that we're providing the same opportunity that somebody who's building a SaaS program does to investors so that we get the people who are actually standing. Like I was looking back at like that thought about who inspires me and you know who inspires me is somebody who's made their money and is still in the trenches. You know, I think Chris Saka is a really good example. He was a huge VC. He stepped away. He never needed to work again. And literally all he works on is climate and democracy now. And it's like, that's so inspiring to see because he's gonna change the world and numbers so far beyond himself or Alexis Ohanian who's come back. Like weirdly, those are the investors that inspire me. Obviously they have, you have access to their thinking because they're sharing it, um, but they're also building communities around them because that's the way that all works where there's gonna be more people opening that up. And I think there's, you know, there's these huge carbon criminals on the planet and then there's all the social impact stuff. And I'm not sure that some of the traditional funding avenues in fashion and product are ready to talk about that stuff or not ready to talk about it with me at least. No, I, I can, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I, um, I totally Tommy, you get do it. For sure, because you're starting in that zone. Yep, yep. But no, this has been really insightful. I think, you know, our listeners will definitely, uh, I know they're going to, you know, look you up and, and kind of follow you. Um, where can, uh, where can we learn more? Where can we, uh, you know, uh, follow the journey and uh, support your products? 
Yeah. So I think obviously it's www.canava.co. Um, you can email us at founders at canava.co. If you want to reach, we'll reach you as well and I both. That email is going to stay open as we scale. I think it's important to be in touch with all the different aspects of the world that want to come talk to us. Somebody I met at the airport table checking in for my Hawaii wristband has a program that she's running. And I was like, email us at founders at canava.co and maybe she will someday. Um, and I actually have to say, as a founder myself, I've listened to some pretty powerful people say that at the end of podcasts, and I've actually emailed them, and they do email you back. It does work, so do it. Um, and then the socials, we're everywhere. It's Canava or Canava Brand, and then I'm just my name, Jaren Lockhart. This has been great, Jaren. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, nice to see you.